So when you're a kid, you grow up thinking that the adults in your life have it all figured out and have it all together. And childhood is kind of a continual process of realizing that that's not always true. That sometimes even people in authority don't see the whole picture and don't have it all together. I remember one of my, uh, well, maybe not early experiences, but later experiences, junior high experiences of realizing that this was the case. My parents were missionaries, and uh, we would uh, come back every four years and spend a year in northeast Georgia. And we'd get plugged into a, a larger church in town for the small town that we were in. So not everybody necessarily knew who we were, um, even though my parents were in ministry, which was fine with me, um, because that way, uh, you know, even though I didn't really fit in, I didn't stand out either. Uh, and so, yeah, I got to know a few friends in the youth group and um, was starting to feel connected. And uh, one Wednesday night, I was standing outside of the youth room door talking with one of my friends. We were on a break. And there was a classroom behind me that was being used uh, for the elementary midweek ministry. And we were, we were talking, and I, I heard a knock on the door behind me, and heard the door open, and we turned around, and an older man, who I recognized as one of the elders of the church, uh, we'll call him Mr. L, he poked his head out, looked around, looked at us, and said, did you knock on the door? And we said, no, we, we didn't see anybody. He said, okay. Kind of shrugged, closed the door again. We're talking a little bit more, and a minute later, the sixth grader, who I recognized but didn't know his name, zips by us, knocks on the door, and runs down the hall. And I'm standing there realizing, oh no, Mr. L is going to think that I did it. And so I run after him, hoping I can catch him before he gets around the corner, and he gets around the corner just before the door opens behind me, and I hear, where are you going? And I turn around, and Mr. L is looking at me. And I don't remember exactly what I said to him and what he said to me. At one point, my friend tried to cut in and say, sir, he, he didn't do it. And he looks at my friend and says, did you put him up to it? He said, no, he didn't do it. And, 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 and he, he turned back to me and said, do, do you want to go talk to Mr. Spiropoulos, who was the, the person who led that children's ministry on Wednesday nights? And he's a great guy. And I said, I, I think I said something like, okay, we can do that. But I still didn't do anything. And of course, he didn't believe it. And I, in retrospect, I realized how silly it sounds. Like, oh, he went that away. But he, he, he really, he, he kind of laid into me. And, uh, and I think at, at some point, he kind of realized that like, he was laying into a junior higher and that it wasn't going to do anything because I wasn't fessing up to anything. So he finally shrugged in disgust and went back into the classroom that he was teaching. And you know, in, in retrospect, this was a small injustice. I didn't get punished. Nothing happened. But in the years that followed, I found myself thinking about that experience a lot. It actually impacted me. And it was one of those moments where I realized that good, well-intentioned people in authority— Mr. L was a good man. I made him sound really mean. Um, I, 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 he's a good man. But sometimes they don't see the whole picture. And sometimes they make bad calls. And sometimes people who do see the whole picture don't have the power or authority to do anything about it. And so what happens is that in the face of injustice, we find ourselves feeling helpless. We've been studying the book of Isaiah together, and we read today from Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to be working out of that text. So if you do have your Bible with you, or if you have a pew Bible, um, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, which is page 600 in your pew Bible. So you can follow along. 
We've been studying the book of Isaiah, and we've said before that this book was written in the context of a people who probably felt helpless in their suffering. They probably felt abandoned by God. Now, certainly, if you read the history of Israel and Judah, you'll see that this wasn't entirely not their fault, right? They they had strayed far from the Lord's plans for his people. But there was still a sense of injustice here. Because, yes, they had strayed from the Lord, but surely they weren't as bad as Babylon. They were supposed to be God's people. They were supposed to be benefiting from his promises and experiencing prosperity. And what was happening instead is they were suffering under the unjust rule of a wicked empire. Can you imagine if you were one of the faithful people, one of the people that hadn't given in to the idolatry, somebody like Isaiah, who was just a hapless victim of a situation that was outside of your control? You might have found yourself saying something like what they were saying in Isaiah 40, verse 27, partway down the page. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Perhaps they wondered if the Lord was something like Mr. L was for me. Someone who was in charge and powerful, but didn't get it, didn't see what was going on, didn't understand how they were feeling. Or perhaps they thought of him as more like my friend, who could see, but either was unable or unwilling to act. Was God more like those tribal deities? that didn't have absolute knowledge and didn't have absolute power? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. It's a cry of helplessness. It's a cry wondering if God really sees and if he's really going to make things right. Have you ever found yourself in that kind of situation? Have you ever found yourself wondering if God really sees you? Or if he's really going to act? This passage that we read is a reassurance to us that God is not like Mr. L. It's an invitation for us to rely on the Lord, or put another way, to wait for the Lord. So often, it's not that we actually doubt that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all all those things. It's that in that moment, in that moment of crisis, when our world is falling apart, God's help feels, I don't know, theoretical, maybe impractical. And so instead of relying on him, what we do is something very reasonable. We consider our options. What are my resources? Whom can I turn to for help? I want to talk about three places that we might turn for help when we feel ourselves overwhelmed. Sometimes we turn to experts. Sometimes we turn to idols. And sometimes we turn to champions. I want to look at what Isaiah has to say about each of these sources of help and how they relate to God. So let's talk for a moment about experts. I work in the IT field, and I've learned that it's always a good idea to find out what is best practice. Usually, there's someone out there who has solved the problem that you're trying to solve. And so it's a good idea not to spin your wheels or 
yeah, spin your gears, reinventing the wheel, uh, to, to see what others have done. Look to the experts. And that's true of any body of knowledge, right? Um, I've started getting into smoking meats recently. And uh, yeah, uh, I got a smoker. It was really exciting. And a friend of mine at church who's been doing this a long time said, here's what you got to do. So I was waiting for his advice. He said, go to amazingribs.com. A guy named Meathead has recipes there that are exactly what you need. Just follow the recipe. It'll come out perfect. He's the expert. If you were a king in the ancient Near East, you would have a retinue of experts. You'd have somebody who could give you an inventory of your resources and your enemy's resources and maybe your potential ally's resources. They might be able to tell you how long your grain would last in a siege or help you weigh your military might against your opponent's military might. And if you were a good king, you would do well to listen to the experts. It's good to have experts. Listen to your doctor. Listen to your lawyer. Listen to your wife. But the question that Isaiah 40 raises for us is if we're willing to listen to experts who admittedly have a limited scope of imperfect knowledge, why would we not listen to the counsel of the ultimate expert? The king's counselors know how much wine or grain is in the king's stores, but look what Isaiah 40 says about the Lord in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Isaiah is asking, do you have an expert who can tell you exactly how many milliliters of water or grains of sand are on the planet? Because God can. He knows to the milligram how much the mountains and the hills weigh. So back to our initial question. Does God understand my situation? Does he see? Yes. He sees not only our situation, but he sees it in a context, in a bigger picture than we can possibly fathom. That's what makes God the ultimate counselor. Go on to verse 13. It says, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Isaiah is saying, okay, you think you need a better expert than God? Maybe you want to consult the guy or the gal that God consults, right? Like, I want Warren Buffett's financial advisor. And Isaiah is saying, who's God's counselor? Oh, yeah, nobody. He is the expert and those problems that we have, those, those nations that are threatening to sweep you away? Verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Our biggest problems don't phase God. You can't do better than having God as your counselor. And he's given us his counsel in the Holy Scriptures. Now let's be clear. We do need other experts. 
right? The, the Bible isn't going to tell us how to perform a surgery or how to manage our retirement portfolio. But it does have an awful lot to say about human dignity and about what it means to steward our resources well. The Bible speaks to a surprising number of things, from money to relationships to sexuality to power to justice. And where the Bible speaks, we would do well to listen because God is the ultimate expert. So we listen to experts, but we listen first to the ultimate expert. So experts are one place that we turn when we find ourselves in situations outside of of our knowledge. Another place that we turn when we're faced with overwhelming circumstances is to idols. Look at verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. You know, I used to wonder why God's people were such suckers for idolatry. It doesn't make sense. How can something that I create with my own two hands possibly be worthy of worship, right? And that's kind of what Isaiah is getting at here. He, he briefly describes the process of creating an idol so that we can see how ludicrous it is to compare the God of the universe to this piece of wood that was carved by my buddy, the skilled craftsman Azariah. There's, there's no comparison here. And yet, time and again, God's people turn to idols. I want to share a, a useful insight with you that I didn't learn in seminary or uh, in a commentary. Uh, I actually first heard it from one of our ResKid storytellers. And I'm going to share it with you to, to enlighten you. Here it is. Ancient people weren't stupid. Sometimes I think we look back and we're like, oh, yes, they were all primitive and superstitious, and, and, and we wouldn't make those same mistakes. Why would people, let, let's think about this for a moment, why would a reasonable person sacrifice time and resources for a mere superstition. I want to propose that it's probably because, at least in part, it was working for them. Now, on one hand, there's some evidence in in, in the scriptures that these idols may have been representations of these sort of bigger demonic powers that were leading people astray uh, by enticing them with rewards. That's a possibility. The Bible talks about magic and and divination, um, not as superstitions, but as actual weak rival powers to God. But that's not what this passage gets at. If you look at this passage here, it, it talks about the uselessness of idols. So what's happening here? Well, I think there's another reason why idolatry seemed to work for ancient people, and a different form of it seems to work for us today. That is that idolatry offers a sense of control. When God's people were waiting in the wilderness, Moses went up to the mountain to talk to God, and the people started getting antsy. The man who was leading them, the guy who was in control, was gone. Now who's in control? Who's holding the reins? Moses isn't around. We haven't, we, we haven't seen God. Well, okay, so instead of waiting for the Lord, they pool their resources, and they build an idol. And they say, this will be our God. And the pattern continues. They get to the promised land. 
And if you're a farmer, your, your livelihood is dependent on the rain, right? And the weather is unpredictable. Who knows if you're going to have a good harvest? But the people around you, the Canaanites, tell you that there are these prescribed rituals that are part of Baal worship. And if you follow these rituals, if you take these three easy steps, then Baal will send you a decent harvest. It couldn't hurt. I'll worship the God of Israel and do these rituals. Now, to us, that might sound fanciful, right? That might sound like something modern people would never do. But I don't know. I've seen an awful lot of ads telling me that I can get rid of my belly fat with one weird trick, right? Like, we're a sucker for how-tos to fix our life, to get some control over our life, whether it's crystals or meditation exercises or essential oils or diet plans or whatever it is. We try to find solutions and rituals that will help us to gain a semblance of control over the things that are outside of our control. And I want to clarify that it's perfectly natural to want to have agency in our circumstances. Earlier this summer, um, during that heat wave that we had, uh, my family's AC unit went out. And I got really nervous because it was hot. But I also knew that my AC unit was 21 years old. And that if I called somebody about it, they would probably tell me that I just need to get it replaced. And I also knew that there was a shortage of AC units, which means that I would pay the big bucks to get this fixed. And I wasn't ready to do that. So I was no expert, but I went on Google and YouTube and found something that might work and did a little trial and error, and I fixed it. And I was so proud of myself. I mean, if you looked up, like, what's the easiest AC fix that you can do? This was probably it. I didn't care. I was so happy. I would, like, you know, drop it in casual conversation and sermon illustrations. And, 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 but, but part of it was that I felt like I had exercised mastery over chaos. Something had come at me, and I'd swatted it back. God has given us the ability to, in a small way, bring order out of chaos. And that's good. But when a situation is truly outside of our control, our attempts to regain control can very quickly become idolatry. I can't control my circumstances, but I know that if I just drink enough of this substance— if I just binge eat, if I just give in to this lust or lose myself in escapism, I can at least control the way I feel for this short amount of time. Or on the other side, I can't control my circumstances, but I can control my diet. I can control my exercise regimen. I can try very hard to control my children and my spouse. And what happens is we, we get caught up and these ways of thinking, and these activities, and these lifestyles that don't have any power to meet our deepest needs, but have somehow become the objects of our devotion. They have become idols. And friends, these idols are a sorry substitute for the God of the universe, because they aren't actually worthy of our devotion, and they don't actually have the power to help us. Instead, they drain our resources, and our vitality, and our hope for a purposeful life. Compare this with the description of the God of Israel in verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers 
who, stretch out, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. This is beautiful poetic language to describe a God who is not constructed by human fancy, not fabricated to meet our needs. God isn't like those idols that we can control and shape in our image. He's the God of the universe. He is the creator who made us in his image, which means the most powerful army in the world is like a colony of bugs to him. He doesn't live in a tent or a temple. The universe is his temple. The ancient people associated the stars with with lowercase g, gods. But Isaiah says even the stars are subject to him. He calls the starry host by name. God is the one who is worthy of all of our devotion. So why should we fret about control? Would it not be better to accept that the God who made heaven and earth, the God who understands the way the world is structured, that this God who can disperse his enemies with a breath, that he's the one who's in charge? Wouldn't it be better to accept that there is nothing in my life or in my country's life or in the world that God cannot himself redeem and restore? If we can accept God's rule over our life, it doesn't mean that we'll never feel like things are out of our control. We'll still feel that way sometimes, and it might still be scary. But it's liberating to know that the person who is in control is perfectly capable of handling it. And he promises that one day he will make it right. And he has the power and authority to back up that promise. So we don't need to turn to idols. There's a third place that we might turn. Sometimes when we find ourselves in over our head, we look for a champion. This is especially true when we have been a victim of harm, when we've been wronged in some way. We want someone who will go to bat for us. We want the politician who's going to stop the injustice. We want the lawyer who's going to come in and sue the pants off of the person that wronged us. We want the internet mob to rise up and destroy the reputation of that person who said something hurtful or, or, or who we think is wrong-headed or whatever it is. I certainly wanted, I, I appreciated my friend who tried to go to bat for me. This isn't a bad instinct. It's right for those who have power and influence to steward that power and influence justly to defend those who have been wronged or who are vulnerable. And if we are the ones who are wronged or vulnerable, it's right for us to want an advocate to go to bat for us. But at the same time, we have to come to terms with the fact that the strongest of champions may someday fail and disappoint us. Like the classic poem, Casey at the Bat, sometimes... Mighty Casey strikes out. We can't ultimately trust in human champions. Our parents, 
our spouse, our best friend, our pastor, may at some point fumble, fail, be too weak to do what needs to happen. But not God. Look at verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. When Jesus, the Son of God, became our champion, took on our humanity, he didn't stumble and give in to temptation. The enemy tempted him to use his power to gratify his own hunger, and he didn't do it. He tempted him to use his power to set up earth, an earthly kingdom and to avoid the cross. He didn't do it. He didn't run away from death. He went headlong into it and conquered it. And he rose again so that anyone who trusts in him will receive his life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you hear that promise? If you have been joined with Jesus in his death, then he's not just strong for you. Jesus is strong in you and through you. He actually gives you his strength to live the life that he is calling you to lead. And he'll help you carry on in his strength if you'll only wait for him. What does that mean, to wait for the Lord? It doesn't mean that we just sit on our hands and do nothing until God, I don't know, speaks out of a cloud or moves a mountain. Those of you who speak Spanish will find this intuitive, but the, the word that's translated here, wait, in another translation uh, might be hope. It, it has two senses. It can be wait, like the people of Israel should have waited for the Lord and not built an idol, but it can also mean to hope or to anticipate or to expect. Someone who waits for the Lord is someone who fully expects that the Lord will act. What might that look like in our daily lives? What might it look like for us to wait for the Lord? It might look like waking up in the morning and instead of instantly diving into the busyness of our day, taking a moment, listening to the counsel of God and his word, asking God, what do you have for me to do today? Will you give me the strength to do it? Waiting for the Lord might mean running our business ethically, according to our Christian convictions, even when it might be expedient to cut corners, even when things are hard, because we trust that God will provide for us. Waiting for the Lord might mean holding on to Him and continuing in prayer and trust, even when that crisis comes out of left field and knocks our feet out from under us. When we're feeling like our world is falling apart and we have every reason to just get up and walk away from Jesus and his church, holding on and saying, Jesus, I know that you are with me. I know that you will hear me. I know that you are good. When it's hard to see that. Waiting for the Lord is walking 
through our days and weeks and years with Jesus. Instead of trying to run ahead of him and then retroactively asking him to bless us. Can we do that? Can we wait for the Lord together? I want to invite you into that this morning. Let Jesus be our chief expert. Let Jesus be the supreme object of our worship and affection. Let Jesus be our champion. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.